there sat down once a thing on Henry's heart so heavy. If he had a hundred years and more and weeping, sleepless, in all them time, Henry could not make good. Starts again, always in Henry's ears, the little cough somewhere, odor, a chime. And there is another thing he has in mind. Like a grave Sienese face, a thousand years would fail to blur the still reproach of ghastly with open eyes. He attends, blind. All the bells say, too late. This is not for tears. Thinking. But, uh, never did Henry, as he thought he did, uh, end anyone and uh, hacks your body up and hide the pieces where they may be found. He knows. He went over everyone and nobody's missing. Often he reckons in the dawn, the ma. Nobody is ever missing. the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan. Joining me tonight is my co-host Gabby. Hello everyone. Just the two of us again, but we are delighted to welcome back to the program a guest who helped us break down the season one finale of Succession. For those day one fly guys who remember, it's cultural critic and author Isaac Butler. How you doing, Isaac? 
I am doing great. And let me tell you, I am so excited to be back. When the third season started, one of the first things on my mind was, am I going to get to go back on Roycast? And so I am honored to be back and doing another finale. Wow, what a vote of confidence. Oh, I know that you knew up front that you were going to be back because I asked you even before the season started to return. And, uh, you know, the reason we, uh, you know, asked you all the way uh, back in season one was because you were kind of our Shakespeare expert there, right? right? You were doing the, the Lend, Your, Lend Me Your Ears podcast for Slate at that time. You're a student of Shakespeare. And we wanted to talk about, you know, not just that first season finale, but also just taking the season as a whole. And, you know, once you when you can see the kind of whole shape of what's going on, I think that's a different conversation than when you're sort of in the weeds of the TV recap game week to week, trying to si- kind of suss out what the larger design might be. Totally. So this is, again, a season finale, and we'll take a more plot-focused approach to this episode because to paraphrase a certain thought leader, there are seasons where nothing happens and there are episodes where whole seasons happen. So there are a a few big developments in this episode that pay off long-running plot threads and set the stage for what seems like it's going to be a very different season four. It's an hour where a lot of dominoes fall. And we've talked often this season about the circular nature of the show's drama I mean, all the way back in episode two, we talked about that and how in various ways the shows seem to be repeating itself, that the characters are trapped in cycles at times, making that into a compelling, dramatic principle, and at other times, maybe less so. I mean, the nature of recapping television episodes is that you can sometimes lose the forest for the trees and it can be difficult to see the larger design, but now we can maybe talk about what that is. Um, Isaac, you alluded in some of our pre-show discussions, I think, to the season being, you know, maybe at times inconsistent and maybe feeling like uh, they were running short of ideas. I'd like to, can can you talk about that a little bit and just how this season has played for you? Yeah, I want to preface this by saying, obviously, that, uh, you know, I'm an enthusiastic viewer of the show. I wouldn't be on this podcast if I didn't really like it and if I didn't enjoy the show. And and as you know, I, you know, I know some people who are involved in the making of it and and, and stuff like that. Um, that said, you know, if you use the, the forest and the trees metaphor, I think it's a show that often has incredibly beautiful trees that do not always add up to a real forest. Um, I do think they managed to stick the landing every time time in the finale their finale game is incredible i think if you ever want to write a season finale you should just study all three of these finales because they're incredible but i do think that there is a way in which the show functions better as a series of events as a series of moods as a series of moments than it does as an overarching thing in part because they tend to raise a bunch of stuff that they then sort of pointedly don't follow through on, right? Um, and, the, and, and and to me, you know, I go back to that E.M. Forrester thing about plot, that like what plot is created out of is causality. Things causing other things creates plot. And they do a lot of stuff in this show where in an individual episode, something will happen that feels like it's high stakes. You know, they put that Nicholas Bertel music underneath it and you're like, oh, this is important. And then it's basically never mentioned again. Like the entire episode with Adrian Brody's character who never shows up again. You know, we're told that's the most important thing in the universe. And then it sort of doesn't matter. Or the deal where... Uh, uh, Hope Davis's character is now going to be on the board. That doesn't seem to matter anymore either. Or, you know, they pick the Nazi to become the next president of the United States. That doesn't seem to matter. You know, this season especially, it seems to me that they are pointedly, I actually think it's purposeful this season, but they are pointedly raising these plot threads and then 
um, throwing cold water on them over and over and over again. Because, as you say, there's a certain stuckness to these characters. But I think nine hours of television is a lot to ask of viewers to see a bunch of interesting stuff that kind of doesn't add up to anything. And then a mad scramble to make it add up to something in the last episode. Which, again, I think they pull that off. But I, 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 I do think... I, I found this season a little repetitive, a little tiresome, a little empty, uh, a little slow. Um, and uh, uh, while I loved individual moments of it um, um, and I loved this finale, I thought it was a really well-constructed finale. Uh, I, 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 I did find myself just wanting things to happen that actually <laughs> seemed to matter. And uh, in particular, I feel like for the first two seasons, the writers knew that the question of who ran Waystar Royco was not interesting. That like that was not actually an important, which of these dumb assholes runs the most evil company on earth does not actually matter, but it matters incredibly to the characters. And the distance between those two things created a fascinating irony that's actually where a lot of the show's comedy comes from. And this season, in terms of the plot, they seemed really invested in the question of who runs Waystar Royco, which is not a question that's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is we here for you. You know what I mean? What's interesting to me is Kendall's ridiculous birthday party. That's the stuff that's interesting to me. The actual corporate backroom machinations have never been what I watch the show for. And that's most of what this season has been. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, one of the episodes that it's most fascinated me in terms of the divergent reactions I've seen to it was episode five, Retired Janitors of Idaho, because that sense of kind of my favorite episode of the season, I should say. Well, this is but that really, was an all business episode. See, this is what's really fascinating to me about this episode in particular, because I think of it as sort of, a, I don't know, a Rosetta Stone for what this season is doing, because you talk about this sense of stuckness, the characters being in, in cycles, this feeling of, you know, the kind of like team whoever drama of who's going to win the company or whatever. Um, that episode is precisely about that principle, right? It's precisely about the idea that these people are trapped in this sort of just like old school French farce. Uh, that they take incredibly <laughs> seriously. Yes. Um, you know, it, 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 wheels spin and wheels spin, and they're making a deal that seems like it doesn't matter, and you get to the end of it, and you're like, wait, what did we do all that for exactly? And so I'm really fascinated by people who, uh, it, when people like, like you, maybe you have issues with the season, but that episode, which I think is... Uh, a good example of what the show does well, which is to yeah. illustrate that principle of stuckness and futility in a dramatically and comedically interesting way. So I, yeah. I so that's I, that I think is a good lens for looking at what the series does. You also raise a lot of things about the way that the show treats sort of like potential plot threads, like it will dangle things. And then you say throw cold water. I don't see it as throwing cold water on the stuff, but it's, it sort of lays out options that it can either pick up or not. Certain things come back, certain other things don't. I suspect that we have not seen the last of Justin Kirk as Jared Menken. Right. Uh, but it's but yeah, he didn't come back in the finale to, you know, I, deliver a, a crushing Bon Mo or anything. I, I hope we have not seen the last of Justin Kirk because my wife has a huge crush on him. And so I, I just too. I just want her to be happy <laughs> and seeing Justin she saw a play of Playwrights Horizons when she was working there with Justin Kirk and James Urbaniak in it. And she has been in love with Justin Kirk ever since. So I just want much more Justin Kirk. No, I mean, you know, the Idaho one is amazing because it's an amazing Amazing farce. I should say my actual favorite episode of the season is the uh, presidential primary 
you know, the the Turning Point USA conference or whatever it was where yeah. they're yeah. picking the next president in part because we finally I know we'll get to this later, but we finally get a lot of Tom and Greg. And to me, the essence of the show is actually Tom and Greg. And the more an episode has Tom and Greg in it, the better it is. And I think the creators of the show agree because this finale has within it the implicit promise, almost explicit to the viewers. I know we put Tom and Greg in separate rooms for a lot of this season, but don't worry, folks. Next season, Tom and Greg, it's going to be, you know, you're going to break a, you're going to make a Tomlet by breaking some Gregs over and over and over. <laughs> well, it sounds like you enjoyed a lot of the episodes. Sure. Actually. No, I did. I did. I just, you know, like, I, I think it's a good show. I just think there are certain overall structural things that keep me from, Em- yeah. embracing it as great the way that say the rest of Twitter does yeah I mean I've seen the critique that the show sets up plot lines that just kind of dissipate but yeah I mean I think the stuff like Jared Macon like that's bound to return and I think what you're talking about that there's like a lot of dramatic moments that then just sort of like lead uh, to something completely different a shift in tone right like it's high drama I think of the transition from um the third episode with the FBI raid and it's like super super high stakes super high drama and then the beginning of the next episode is just like Kendall in his apartment cracking jokes and like that change of tone and pace can be like disorienting for a viewer but I don't know I feel I feel like um I've kind of just come to enjoy that the show is like that that it doesn't like pull Breaking Bad style moves that it will just kind of like upend your expectations so I, I understand the critique, but I like I've come to sort of um, uh, sort of bask in the ambiguity of it all. So if you like its avoidance of breaking bad moves, what do you make of the cheap ass cliffhanger of episode eight and the way that okay. it pays off in episode? <laughs> I don't nine? think it was cheap at all. I think all right. it would have been cheap to pick it up like a uh, breaking bad style. Kendall's dead in the water. You know, the, the pink teddy bear. The pink teddy bear, right? It's the pink teddy bear. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, this, Brendan. Are we, are we, uh, no, are I mean, this is a really, no, this is a really interesting question. I think it's very germane and it gets us into the beginning of this episode. And like I said, I th- we're going to, we're going to go a little bit more chronologically through this episode just because it is so plot driven, this one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this idea of, uh, we, st- in the last episode, uh, you know, it ends with this place where, you know, Kendall's sort of poised between life and death. And we, we talked on our last podcast about how none of us really read that scene. Interestingly, none of us read that as Ken's dead. We did not think that was the case. And I don't know if that's just kind of our extra textual, just kind of like our, our accumulated sort of awareness of how the show's written. Because I just didn't believe for a second that it, if they were going to write Kendall off the show, which I didn't rule out. But if they were going to do that, I didn't buy for a second that that's how they would do it. So I just never thought that that was what was happening in that scene. Yeah, I mean, I my feeling was this, and I actually think the finale addressed this in a different way, right? But I just felt like by the end of the penultimate episode, something has got to give. The status quo yes. of this show cannot continue. It is not sustainable. I actually didn't think it was sustainable through a third season, frankly. Uh, you know, but I was like, but I was like, the, this status quo can't continue. They clearly recognize this through the repetition and the action, the feeling of of uh, that everyone's sort of in Tartarus together, right? Not being able to move. Um, uh, something's gotta give. And so I was like, oh, actually, that's 
that would be an interesting thing. If you just fucking killed Kendall off, that would be an interesting way to disrupt this status quo. It makes sense within the character. It's a good callback to the wedding drowning of, of, uh, in season one, you know, like it makes, it has a certain structural elegance. I'm actually kind of impressed that they would do that. And then, you know, because it's a, you have a week between episodes by Saturday night, I was like, if he's not dead, I'm actually going to be angry. Uh, uh, Because I felt like it was yet another moment in which they gave themselves the opportunity to do something to disrupt the status quo and then refused it. Um, But it turns out it's because in the finale, they're hiding another one that is what happens at the end of the episode do you know what i mean so it's like like all i i think what i was really invested in was just the idea that the current way the show is arranged can't continue like it really can't there's no point in having a fourth season where everything's exactly the same and clearly the finale sets us up to move away from that it, it didn't have to be kendall dying i'm just glad that something happened that's shaking up what's going on well, I, I think we talked about this on, on the episode last week, but the specific thing that the show has to change is that it has to it has to turn that pressure valve on Kendall specifically. You talk about the current arrangement of the show, I think just in terms of like the siblings being really invested in jockeying for power of the company in this current arrangement that they have with their father, that has to change. Sure, but I think the more immediate specific thing is that it's not plausible that Ken kind of goes on under the strain of this secret and this guilt that he's under, Yeah, you know? Ken has to either kill himself or in some way relieve that burden. So the writers choose to have him confess to his siblings, which in an interesting way is the gesture that actually most preserves the status quo that they could have opted to. Even as they upend everything minutes later in the finale, you know, that bomb in story terms, that bomb hasn't really gone off. There's still the unexploded kind of possibility that the wider public will discover this story. His siblings, on the other hand, are motivated to keep that secret between themselves. So, I mean, as it keeps Kendall in the game, while at the same time, it doesn't actually change all that much within the current configuration, but it does serve the purpose in, within this episode of collapsing the distance between Ken and his siblings, who, without that context, are not able to understand what he's going through. Wasn't there a fan theory that he was going to go on that podcast and spill the beans and then kill himself? And that's what the finale was going to be. I seem to remember someone. <laughs> say, I mean, nope. that's, that's the, bra- that's something the much, along those lines. Yeah. 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 That's that the was- much cheaper version of the show to be very clear. And, and I'm glad that they did what they did, that he confesses it and that it, it, it is a glue that brings them, um, uh, back together because it's much more interesting to have those three allied, but fighting with each other. Right. You know, than it is to have them completely separated. Yeah, because they haven't been united in this way, like since, um, you know, since the beginning of the series, when they when they formed that very tentative truce to allow Ken to take over the company, you know, and we can start talking about that confession scene, which I think is, you know, it's where the plot matter of the episode really starts to kick in because it's in that scene that they also are realizing for the first time that their father's trying to sell the company out from under them. Um, but it's but I, it is obviously I think for me the the big centerpiece of the episode. I mean that scene where they're in this kind of alleyway and they're they're still in Tuscany for their mother's wedding. That scene starts with a, a worker taking out garbage in the alley where they're trying to have a secret meeting. Um, you know, implying I think also that Ken sees this worker and is reminded of Andrew Dodd, the waiter whose death he's responsible for. Uh, but that image of the garbage t- being taken out right is this image that can apply both to Ken kind of purging himself of his guilt and also. The the idea that in this episode we don't quite know yet but in this episode the kids themselves are the garbage that's being taken out by their dad 
right? Yeah, totally. Uh, it also is a callback to my favorite thing this season, which is the mountains of food that no one eats in every single oh scene. God. It's my favorite we running. It. It's my favorite. It's a, <laughs> it's it's a subtle running gag, I think, in a weird way. But it's my favorite running gag. That's like the basket of croissants that no one touches. The 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 delicious <laughs> spread of lobster, you know, and it, it, right. et cetera and so forth. <laughs> so I'm just saying that guy is probably throwing out some food because they just never yeah. eat any food. There's just mountains of it, eat. and they never eat any of it. Oh, I didn't take a long enough look at the food in that last scene with Tom and Greg where they're sitting down at the banquet table. I didn't see how much food was there. We should, I'm we sure should... there's a fuck ton of food. <laughs> we, should pour, we should pour through some of those screen caps. Uh, okay, but uh, again, I, again, we like to start a little by always acknowledging the direction a bit. And as usual, uh, the director, Mark Mylod, is very keen about kind of blocking the scene. And you have this process where Ken sits down on this chalky gravel, which looks like the sand of a desert floor. And the siblings eventually have to come down and meet him at his level in order to offer him support. You know, and there's these visual comparisons that spring to mind. I saw people referencing, looking at screen caps of that scene, you know, the Italian New Wave, Antonioni films, like The Passenger. But I think the biggest thing is just that sense of abstraction of the structures and institutions that mediate and corrupt human relationships in the series finally dropping away and the siblings being able to confront each other directly. Um, I also want to read this uh, this fascinating thread from uh, Michael Schulman, the journalist who wrote the, yeah, totally. uh, the, the infamous New Yorker profile of Jeremy Strong that was released... Uh, last weekend. Uh, let me just uh, read this briefly. It's just a few tweets. So Shulman writes, Jeremy told me about that incredible scene in the parking lot, which he said had a cathartic event, but didn't say what. Originally, Kendall was sitting on a stone pillar that Jeremy asked the production designer to make. They did nine takes and he just wasn't feeling it. He was in a place of despair and thought he had failed as an actor. He was facing his ultimate test and didn't want to contrive emotion that wasn't there. Then he had an impulse to sit on the gravel instead, knowing that it would instantly render the first nine takes unusable because of the change in continuity. So he sank to the ground and saw the white mineral dust on his hand, and in his words, the whole scene opened up. So Isaac, uh, this is another uh, great sort of uh, synchronicity with you uh, being on the podcast at this moment. Uh, you've been researching the history of method acting for the last few years, yep. and I want to give you a chance to clarify any of the confusion about method acting that was circulating in the discourse around this profile. Strangely, or maybe not so strangely, while Shulman and Strong both clarified in the profile that Strong does not consider himself a method actor, uh, that's what the discourse ended up kind of revolving around. Um, so I want to ask you, has that term sort of escaped efforts to define it? And I know that's kind of a big question, I'm sure, when you have complicated feelings on. Uh, and all, but more specifically, what precedents might one point to for Strong's process. Is there a term or a school of acting that applies there? That's an amazing question that I will try to answer succinctly, but it's very difficult because I just wrote a book length answer to it. Um, I should say in advance, in the interest of full disclosure, that I did talk with Michael while he was writing that profile. He had some questions about acting and about the method and about the history of it that that I helped him with. And I you know, sent him a copy of the book to read and, 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 and stuff like that. So um, I am I I I I feel defensive of him in that profile because i think it got a weirdly bad like i don't know what was going on with aaron sorkin and whatever with their annoyance of that profile anyway so i think that in the public eye in the 21st century 
method acting where the method means men taking themselves too seriously and sort of um, adopting the life habits of their character and living as their character all the time and not breaking character between takes. And, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis making a bark canoe when he's going to be in Last of the Mohicans or, you know, whatever it is. And so Jeremy Strong is a kind of parodic, feels to some people like a, not to Michael, I think, and not in that profile, but in the reaction to it, like a sort of like, oh, this is, this is once again, one of these method guys who's pissing off his co-workers and taking himself too seriously and wearing his shoes extra tight and not breaking character and you know it's sort of like almost feels like mental illness and not acting and blah 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 now the actual method is the complete opposite of that the actual method uh as uh, the term method acting specifically within the the acting world refers to the teachings techniques et cetera, et cetera, and so forth, of Lee Strasberg, uh, um, who was a, a director and an actor. You can see him in Godfather Part Two as Hiram Roth, and um, acting teacher who ran the actor's studio from 1952 until his death 30 years later, uh, and was one of the founders of the group theater. Um, Lee Strasberg very explicitly would say things like, you hear someone say, well, you got to hit me. You got to really hit me. In this fight scene, you got to really hit me so that I can feel it. That's not acting. He, you know, he's, he couldn't be, you know, he couldn't be more explicit about that. Or like, you know, you shouldn't stay in character all the time. That's not healthy. He would say this over and over and over again. The Lee Strasberg's method, the method acting as it was understood from the 50s through to the late 70s, was a highly psychological process about self-discovery and about using the particularities and idiosyncrasies of the self in order to find the character. It is most famous for what's called the effective memory exercise, which is um, if you have a uh, which is the use of sense memory to trigger strong emotions associated with an event in your past. So, for example, this is a completely made up one because my father is still alive. But, you know, um, I remember the texture of my father's hands as I held his hand as he passed away. Right. And so I would think about that texture in order to bring out the grief that is necessary to be Hamlet and to say, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into a Jew or whatever. Um, Jeremy Strong does not do that. Jeremy Strong, uh, um, you know, that's not what he does. He is about getting in touch with the character through the character's habits, through the character's behavior, through the way they wear their clothes, through the way they talk, you know, and doing intensive amounts of research. That method really, it doesn't originate with him, but it is really codified by Robert De Niro in the 1970s. Uh, uh, I'm not sure about Robert De Niro's later career process, but in the 1970s, he pioneers this process that is um, incredibly research heavy, that involves buying his own props and costume pieces. Um, adopting the training regimens and habits of his characters, um, having people who sound like the character read his lines into a tape recorder so he can study it, um, uh, and also writing his own moments and dialogue. You know, De Niro has this whole 
reputation for ad-libbing on set, as does Strong. And there's a part in Michael's profile where he says uh, a lot of Strong's castmates um, suspect that those moments are actually pre-written. Most of De Niro's ad-libs are actually pre-written. He wrote them himself in advance, practiced them, and then brought them into um, onto set. In fact, one of his most famous pieces of acting you talking to me, right? In in Taxi Driver, in the his original script for Taxi Driver, there's a margin note he wrote that just says "mirror thing here?" question mark, right? So he actually planned these moments out. And so I think that it, the more you read about De Niro's process in the 70s, the more it's clear that that's actually what Strong is drawing on. He gets it from Daniel Day-Lewis, whose assistant he was, but that's that's the lineage that he is in. And Robert De Niro didn't like Lee Strasberg, didn't like the actor's studio. He studied with Stella Adler, who was Lee Strasberg's rival. They weren't on speaking terms, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. So, so that, to me, is the lineage that he is in, which is an important lineage in American acting, but it is not what the phrase method acting actually means. Yeah, I appreciate you going through all that. Yeah, I had, I had seen you refer to Robert De Niro, and I was really curious to hear that. And I'm, of course, really excited to get my hands on a copy of your book. Your, the, the De Niro stuff, and also thinking about um, the relationship that we sort of know some things about, but are mostly kind of guessing at the relationship, I think, specifically between Brian Cox and Jeremy Strong on this show, which I think is a really explosive dynamic that has a lot to do with their very sort of differencing, different approaches to the scene. Uh, and then thinking of Robert De Niro reminded me of this story. I don't know if you heard this about De Niro and Joaquin Phoenix on Joker, where uh, De Niro was really insistent on getting all the actors together for a table read, and like Joaquin Phoenix was made like violently ill by the the thought of like having to like read and rehearse with everybody. <laughs> I mean, Joaquin Phoenix seems to be, from everything I've read about him, very fragile, right? He seems to be like like a very fragile person, and so I guess that that doesn't really surprise me. I mean, the number of stories of bonkers stuff that De Niro uh, uh, has done is, is, I mean, it's they're endless. You know, when on um, Midnight Run, he asked Charles Grodin if they could use real handcuffs instead of fake plastic prop handcuffs and Groden had scars on his wrists for the rest of his life as a result. Um, uh, you know, when he uh, did um, the King of Comedy, according to Jerry Lewis, now De Niro disputes this, but according to Jerry Lewis during the King of Comedy, De Niro would just hurl anti-Semitic abuse at him during coverage shots to get like a properly angry response out of him. Yeah. Uh, he was cast in a Mike Nichols film of a Neil Simon play that was then shelved. Um, uh, called Bogart Slept Here, in which he wanted to sleep on the set with, you know, he wanted him and his his co-star was playing the wife. He was like, let's just sleep on the set in the couple's bed. Not, I mean, that wasn't a sexual thing. It was just literally like, this is what the characters do, so let's do that. And he would keep, you know, it's Neil Simon who's highly technical, jokey humor, and he kept being like, is it realistic that the character would say this? And then Nichols eventually fired him and shelved the project. So, you know, it's not it's not without its downsides. But in Jeremy Strong's case, like, look, look at that fucking parking lot scene. It gets results. You know what I mean? Like like that is an extraordinary piece of acting. The confession in the parking lot and the arc that he traces with Roman and Shiv in that scene. It's incredible work. And so I sort of feel like it's probably kind of annoying to be around, but it also works. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, yeah, I'd love to uh, dig back into that scene and talk about, you know, in particular the way the siblings kind of respond to Ken in that scene, which is, you know, kind of touching in its way and also troubling in a sense. You know, I was reminded um, 
watching the way that you know roman and shiv treat him by like getting down on his level and of course that great shot where they're both sort of like ha like laying hands on him of that interaction between tom and logan and retired janitors when he's helping him in the bathroom when his uti is flaring you know and he, they have that uh that that exchange where it's like thanks son he calls him pop papa uh, which is interesting in another direction because of what it may imply about that specific relationship, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but I remarked then about that instinctive human response to seeing somebody in pain and how uh, Tom, maybe by virtue of his different upbringing, although he is around all these characters who seem very inhuman, he hadn't lost this instinct, right, of how to treat somebody who's in need. Um, and here we see that Roman and Shiv are kind of able to find that humanity too even if their reactions are in keeping with their characters, maybe not ideal for addressing the gravity of the right. situation. <laughs> Roman's impulse to joke is sort of awful, while also, you know, fair in the sense that, you know, what he's saying is that, uh, as he says, he says uh, you're not a murderer, at worst you're an irresponsible, right? Like, at worst, right. Ken is technically legally guilty also of, true to the character. Of, of manslaughter or something, right? It's not technically first-degree murder, okay. While the scene is touching and the siblings are doing their best for Ken, it's within their very narrow ability, I think, to process ideas of guilt and morality, these things that tend to be abstract concepts in their world outside of their uh, unarticulated and repressed childhood traumas. Um, Gabby, what did you think of the way the siblings kind of comfort Ken here. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the reactions were, you know, not like <laughs> something, a standard you should hold up to for um, how to deal with sort of like raw emotions and comforting someone, but that's um, entirely appropriate and what we should come to expect from these kids who are still kids. Um, the whole thing was sort of a glimpse you know, into these limited emotional capacities that, that have been um, nurtured over time, or rather de-nurtured, um, you know, the types of things we can imagine happened in, in an abusive household. And, and I, th I think Roman's reaction was very interesting. Um, at first, you know, I, I kind of saw him acting as a little bit of an audience surrogate here. I mean, depending on your interpretation of Kendall's accident, um, there are certainly a lot of people who have been wanting this. Well, Ken, you know, didn't really do, he didn't really kill this guy to be stated out loud on the show. Um, and, you know, we can, we can talk a little bit about uh, whether, you know, what, what Rome says about the accident is true or not. But, um, you know, they, the, the visible discomfort was also, uh, you know, very true to the characters, very understandable. Like, they look like little children who, you know, whose brother has just started crying and, and they don't know how to cope with that. Um, they're concerned, but they're uncomfortable. Um, Roman makes a crack when Shiv goes to take that call that, you know, that she's leaving him here with this. Um, but I think the dark humor of Roman, while somewhat inappropriate, was um, actually very helpful to Ken in that moment yeah. you know it, it broke the ice and it you know there's nothing like someone making you laugh when you're crying and, and you can really see how this whole dynamic has happened before we know roman copes through humor um and so this was going to be you know the way that he um you know tried to try to comfort ken here and 
you know, it was, it was hilarious. And, and, you know, it was the way that Kendall's responding, like, no man. And he's like stifling tears, but, but, you know, laughing at the same time. I personally was also laughing and crying during this scene. Um, I, I think they really nailed the entire thing. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it also harkens back to me to that moment earlier on is it the second or third episode where, where Kendall confronts Shiv and says, you know, you're not actually a good person. You want to think you're a good person, but you're not a good person. And in a weird way, the fact that Roman and Shiv are not good people because they really are not good people makes them the ideal people to comfort Kendall in this moment. And that's what gives it this kind of rich complexity that, you know, the kind of manic who hasn't killed a kid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) The kind of manic, abusive, insult comic whatever you want to call it way that roman exists in the world actually makes him the ideal person to cheer kendall up you know what i mean and that that shiv can sort of justify anything you know like she is like the queen of cognitive dissonance resolution (laughs) you know makes her the perfect person to be like like their evilness is what makes them the right person to comfort Kendall in this moment. Right. Um, you know, when he is feeling guilty about having at least helped enable the death of, of someone, you know, <laughs> right. um, certainly his involvement is, you know, he would very easily be sued. I don't know if he'd be criminally liable, but he was drunk and high while driving yeah. the car. And in I think, terms, this, is this the first time, I'm, you know, I, I haven't watched the season one finale recently. I think, Brendan, you went back and watched it recently. It, I did too, yeah. Is this the first that we know that he dove back in to try to save him, or is that in that scene? I, I didn't remember. It's, it. it's not, yeah. I mean, I actually, you know, I recently watched it and realized that there were a few things I just hadn't clocked, even though I have watched that episode maybe, like, redacted amount of times uh <laughs> i actually um yeah he can kendall makes like somewhat of an attempt while they're still under the water and he bobs up and then he goes back down and then he comes up and he starts swimming a little bit again and then he goes down one more time so he he really did make an attempt there's not much more you can do you know in that particular moment right there uh it was dark unless you're an excellent swimmer you know it was cold also um, you know, you don't really have much of a shot at getting that door open. Uh, what to me felt unforgivable is that when he kind of started walking away, running away, a car comes by and, you know, that would be the ideal moment to flag down the car. Ostensibly, you know, there's a cell phone in the car. You can, you know, get uh, medics there right away. But he hid. He hid behind a tree because he was scared. Yeah. And um, that, to me, is the most unforgivable unforgivable part and perhaps uh, what weighs on Kendall the most, that he truly took the coward's way out. Yeah. Well, I mean, the culpability is that he puts the kid in the car in the first place, right? The kid wouldn't have been in the car if, if, right. if Ken hadn't said, let's go drive and get drugs while, while we're still under right. the influence, right? And the actual... I also want to say, just you know, not to get too procedural about it, but they were driving in the left lane, as one does in the UK and the deer appeared and the kid yanked the wheel kind of all the way where there was to the right where there was a wide enough berth on that bridge for him to kind of have just tugged on it and they wouldn't have gone in the water so again you know like Succession's really good at making moral quandaries like this very very vague and uh, difficult to nail down in terms of you know who's really at fault but yeah I mean he did 
put the kid in that position. It was his desire for the drugs, his fiending. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately his cowardice. So yeah. I feel like Sam Watterson in Law and Order would get a conviction <laughs> based on that. I think so. I mean, well, yeah, you just put this uh, awful rich kid on, you know, in front of a jury. They're going to, you know, people are going to be fiending for a conviction. No, but I mean, I, and I think um, the, you know, the guilt that Ken feels, you know, and if you think about the way that accent is slowly kind of built up to over the course of the season, it sort of seems to come out of nowhere in a sense, in the sense that you don't ever meet this waiter before that. Um, and it's sort of a contrived plot development. But the thing that makes it feel inevitable is that Ken's addiction is a thing that's going to kind of get him in trouble at some point, right? And, Ken, mm-hmm. and it's Ken's addiction and what he conceives of as this flaw within himself, this innate broken thing uh, that leads to this accident. And that's why, and that's at least part of why he's so gripped by this self-loathing, um, which again is something that his siblings are able, and Roman in particular, are very able to kind of quite usefully sort of puncture and say, I think Roman actually says, you know, you're bigging yourself up you know you're inflating this right, right? um you know and and that's yeah and I th- that's another thing where you can also see sort of like this jeremy strong process and the sort of productive friction that he tries to cultivate with his co-stars by staying in this really heavy serious place all the time you can feel that authentic sort of just like annoyance from Culkin. they're just like come on man like get over yourself you're right you know like that that really works <laughs> exactly. in a scene like that right it does, yeah. And I think the thing about addiction, too, and knowing that you're an addict, you know that you're hurting yourself, that you're injuring yourself every day, but it's a tough realization and, and a more difficult realization to arrive at that your addiction hurts other people. And I think this must be an incredible sore spot for Kendall because we know his addiction probably tore his relationship with Rava apart, and that weighs on him. Uh, and now he's, at this point, he had seen he's seen a, a, a whole brand new way that his addiction literally killed someone. So... Um, you know, that's a that's a tough position for an addict to arrive at, that you're not just hurting yourself. So let's talk about, um, you know, we've already mentioned how Ken confessing, Ken relieving some of the strain that he's under, something that had to happen for the show. But uh, something productive does happen, you know, as a result of this scene that doesn't just, as I mentioned, kind of preserve the status quo by not exploding this and not uh, revealing the secret to the world at large, you know, on a, for instance, on a podcast. And instead, it opens up this huge sense of possibility where the siblings begin talking about, you know, the possibility not just of defending their own interests, but a proper team up, you know, sharing power like Ken proposed, you know, all the way back in Mass and Time of War. Uh, but the episode this really reminded me of was, of course, another Mad Men episode, their season three finale, Shut the Door, Have a Seat, uh, which is a sort of, you know, kind of heist movie narrative where the characters put aside their differences, they get a team together, and they upset the show's status quo by striking out to start their own agency. And there was, to me, I, I'm going I'm to preface this by saying I don't quite mean this as a pejorative because I think it's, part, it's, it's a rather intentional, but there was, to me, a kind of fanfic energy to some of the scenes here where it seems that the possibility of the characters, you know, supporting each other and working together that the show had so long kept at bay was suddenly coming true. You know, this is something that I think, you know, some fans would express online and stuff. Oh, I just want the kids to, you know, hug and support each other and help each other heal. It almost feels like we're going to see that for a minute. But then I started to laugh to myself because as soon as, you know, that scene where they're in the back of the car, the strings kick in and they're all working the phones together, making moves, I realized there's no way in hell they're going to pull this off. 
Yeah, the second they're like, uh, I'm actually, you know, it's going to be a pain in the ass, but I'm looking forward to working with you or whatever that line is. I was like, you are fucked. There is just no fucking way this coup is going to work. And yeah. that's like, in a weird way, the characters getting along is how Armstrong at all um, telegraph that they're doomed, right? Yeah. You're like, you're yes. fucked. There's just no way it can work. Yeah, when when they're saying that they're gonna they're gonna split the position, CEO chair, and it's all gonna be nice, and it's actually gonna be really fun to duke it out, and like there's that like smile on Kendall's face, thinking about doing this with his siblings and dad not involved. Yeah, very. I, yeah, <laughs> I do love that Kendall is distraught, and then he's like, "Oh wait, I can fuck over dad. Let's boogie. I'm I'm down. I'm dusting yeah. myself off and getting in this van. Hand me the, hand the shotgun. Let's go kill dad." <laughs> Yeah, pick your pick your meme. You know, uh, Ken smiling in the back there. Uh, you know, Howie smiling at the end of Uncut Gems. Whatever you want, <laughs> um, sailing away on the SS, live forever, right? Uh, but let's let's talk about what's changed for the siblings here because they they couldn't get it together, right? In mass and time yeah. of war. I mean, here maybe they're no longer spooked by Ken's ego. Uh, and the incident, uh, that confession does seem to have kind of brought them closer together. Um, and I'd also note that the one uh, that the person who really needs to be kind of talked down here or talked into the plot is Roman, who's been riding yeah. high recently. But just as he's in awe of his father, there is that slightly needy relationship he has with his siblings whose approval and respect he does crave. Should we talk a little bit about how Roman comes around on this team up? Gabby, what do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, just want to say really quickly about Mass and Time of War, as we've noted um, quite a bit about that episode is that a lot of what Kendall says there about the company, about the kids knowing what was going on, uh, about the changing landscape of media was true, but it didn't come through because he was still not being honest about his motives and he was, uh, you know, way too high on his own supply. And, and uh, you know, several things have changed since then. I think the most necessary being Kendall's confession, which I, I didn't see quite as transformative, but it certainly seems to, to, to ground and stabilize him um, in a way where the pretenses sort of dropped. He's offloaded some of his shame and can, can see things a little more clearly. But yeah, uh, in this particular uh, episode and moment, uh, the most necessary change to fomenting this cooperation uh, was Roman. And, and this starts to happen when Roman is getting sidelined by dad. Um, his confidence is already shaken upon arrival at Matson's house due to kind of the uncomfortable sex talk with dad on the boat where, you know, dad says, you know, you're, you're scared of pussy. If you do, if you have a problem, get straightened out. I don't want to know about it. Roman is visibly uncomfortable. Um, and, and dad also almost <laughs> didn't let him come. Um, you know, Logan is sort of standoffish to Roman. He refuses his hand getting out of the boat. We see Roman lagging behind Matson. Um, and Logan, and he sort of, like, stumbles up the stairs a little bit, and Matson is sharing that ridiculous Zuckerberg anecdote. Um, and then, ultimately, he's kicked out of the meeting, and, and he doesn't do great in the meeting. He makes a joke um, after Matson says Logan might be tired, where he says, come on, do you know who he's fucking? And there's a very telling look of disapproval on Logan's face, right? Now that he knows about Roman's sex stuff, um, to the extent that it can be known right now. That was very much the wrong thing to say. 
Um, and we've been saying for a few episodes that Roman has gotten better at deal making and the, and the Logan style of, you know, I know people business, but this conversation really didn't bear that out. This was an exchange between two real titans of industry with Logan doing what he does best and Roman just looking really inexperienced and adrift. Yeah, there's a really extraordinary bit of staging in this scene where the servant brings them all coffee. And uh, Brian Cox and uh, uh, Alexander Sarsgaard refuse the coffee and then Roman takes the coffee. But as a result, he's just got coffee business to do for the rest of the scene. So it's like the grownups have a real conversation <laughs> while he's just fucking about with his coffee. And it really literalizes that dynamic you, you are describing that he's at the kids table now. Right. I mean, you know. Roman is we knew the fall was coming you know like 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 and um uh uh and as a result he's on the the outside now now you have reason to believe and the siblings do too because of what happens in season one with the attempted coup in season one where Kendall gets stuck in traffic you know that that whole episode and then and then Roman sort of refuses to uh uh execute the killing blow i guess we should say right it's like you're just constantly worried that roman is going to fold and he, uh, and he looks in physical pain throughout that whole second half of that episode mm-hmm. so you're, so you know there's a part of you that's like oh fuck roman's going to fold again and that's the thing that's going to undo all of this but i think he does know because shiv tells him very accurately dad is never going to trust you because he thinks you're a pervert right and that 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 moment is really really key you know i mean i think and i know we're going to get into this later with the actual ending but the the key the clear implication in this episode is that both of the parents harriet walter's character and brian cox's character are actually done with this generation of kids they are over them they have no use for them anymore they have proven themselves to not be worthy etc etc and so forth their mother betrays them for the sake of her terrible new husband who she does not respect she is very open about not respecting him but he brings her a certain level of joy and so she'll sell out her kids for it and logan is trying for a new kid with uh carrie is that the mistress's name he's trying for a new kid with carrie and he's cashing out of the family business uh, presumably to afford the you know, incredible prenup costs that he's going to have to pay because of his renegotiated <laughs> prenup with uh, with his wife. You know, they both want to start over. They've completely fucked up these kids. They've made a total wreck of their original families, although neither would ever admit it. And they need, and so they're like, well, I'm just going to sacrifice my kids to get it. And so it provides a level of irony and pathos to the Roy children coming together because they come together at the exact moment that they become obsolete, at the exact moment that every single other person around them, fucking including Tom, is selling them out right that's the moment they choose for unity and that's what makes it so richly entertaining is that dramatic irony that like the second they're like let's work together you're like oh no everyone (laughs) is selling you out right now and the clues are right there the maca root the you know whatever it is oh my god (laughs) yeah i mean the episode pays off a lot of threads that have been set up throughout the season in plot terms there's certain lines and clues that come back in a big way in this episode but something else that's really paid off is just the sort of freudian undertones and the under and the suggestions of you know 
uh, the sort of the, the like quasi incestuous charge to a lot of the dialogue and the intimations of you know child abuse and perhaps sexual abuse. And I, I did want to note that you know that that bit about Logan, you know Logan thinks that you're a pervert and he won't pick you for Roman. Logan kind of uh, couches this as he thinks it's because he thinks Lo- he thinks Roman's gay, right? Like that's right. the thing that he thinks is wrong with him. Somehow he think he yeah. he's somehow uh, rationalized this as his son's scared of pussy, which is clearly not what's actually going on, and it's it's it, and it's very tied to a big part of Logan's characterization, which I talked about last week, which is his huge blind spots and his deliberately not seeing certain things, which is that clearly there's way more going on with Roman than just he's in the closet, which I don't think is the case. No, I mean, I sort of feel like it's that scene in the uh, episode of The Simpsons where Troy McClure marries uh, Selma. Uh, uh, Mary's Marge's sister where she asks him if he's gay and he's like oh I'm not gay I have this very complicated perversion that can't even be expressed which turns out to be he's in love with seafood he's like in love with fish he wants to have yes. sex with aquatic animals and I, I yeah. feel like whatever's yeah. going on with Roman because we do know that Roman cannot have conventional heterosexual intercourse we know that already right and Shiv yeah. knows that because her friend told her and she's constantly holding it over him whatever's going on with Roman is not that he's gay. It's that he has some very complicated uh, sexuality that is perhaps a BDSM sort of thing. Cause he seems very into being belittled by Jerry, but is not a conventional, the two of them having sex. You know, if Jerry had ever agreed yeah. to have sex with Roman, he wouldn't have been able to do it. Yeah. The only time we see Roman engaging in sexual activity, aside from him, aside from him jerking off, is season one. Um, he, after the sad sack wasp trap, he's with Grace, his uh, you know his first partner early on in that season. And at the end of that episode, you know she has given her number to like a waiter. She's fed up with Roman, and then uh, it's a weird scene where like the 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 waiter is calling her and the phone is vibrating and he's kind of using uh the phone to to um you know get her off and uh it's just a quick second but yeah i mean we other than that i mean it's not really a show that that shows sex scenes in the conventional hbo way um (laughs) whenever sex comes up it's usually disgusting and what, Brendan? No, <laughs> so, something just clicked for me about the Grace backstory, which we've discussed before about, you know, because in the what we're referring to is that in the in the pilot, uh, Roman is implied to have a wife and kids. And then later uh, it's it's sort of it's I think retconned walked back. It's, it's retconned yeah. to the point where like Grace is his girlfriend and she's got kids from a previous marriage. And it's just occurred to me that a big reason why that is is that knowing what we know about Roman's issues, there's no way they could be his kids, right? There's no way he could have right. actually, you know, he could have actually I think conceived. they realize yeah. that a little bit later yeah. on, yeah. that there's no way Roman has any sort of conventional family structure. Yeah, because I think, didn't, um, I think Aryan Moyed said on Twitter, because at one point I got into a conversation about this, about feeling like the show really figured out what it wanted to be in between the first and second episode. Uh, uh, of the first season that the the first episode is it's not quite done yet. it's not quite fully baked yet and i think he said 
on Twitter that there were 18 months in between the making of the first yeah, episode. And the second. Like oh, wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, you yeah. know, there's a, even though it looks like, I mean, they did a great job of making it look like it takes place 10 minutes later, right? Instead of a year and a half. Um, there's a lot of retooling that I feel like they did within yeah. that. A lot of reconceiving. One of them is clearly the realization that it's much more interesting if Roman has like a well, weird, unarticulated <laughs> sexuality that can never be expressed right, exactly. in language. And the other one was Brendan Wright changing Cox's uh, nationality, right? I don't, I they, don't know if had... that comes up in season one. I, I, I think that was some. I think that was uh, he only had. Isn't it that they had uh, uh, Peter Friedman like do a, a recording after the fact when he gives the toast at Logan's birthday, where he says, "Born in Dundee, Scotland," um, and then uh, Cox had this whole, you know joke where he was like yeah so you know i was doing a canadian accent and then i could just revert back to my um, yeah <laughs> my Scottish i remember the story i forget at what point exactly where they made that change i don't know yeah it was it was the first it's, episode it's, it's, it was they, when they changed giving, the pilot okay giving the toast okay. yeah um yeah so yeah i mean like the, the the first half of the first season feels a little a little uneven a little unfinished but definitely from the first to second it's it's, it's um, a big jump you know be, it's a big jump yeah well, should we talk about, um, uh, I, I know we, we have a lot more to say about Roman and all the siblings, but I, I want to hang a little bit on this scene with, uh, between Logan and Matson because, you know, we spent a lot of time in our previous episode talking about the season's themes, about, you know, the business world and kind of uh, thinking about the season as a story and the series as a whole as a story about, you know, how power changes hands and that idea of like succession, right? Not just in terms of the person who takes power, but in terms of the interests uh, that hold world power. Um, and so that, that scene where he, where Logan and Roman go to pay Matson another visit, there's a line there where Logan says that he's excited about the future. And Matson says, are you really? And Logan's <laughs> response is, well, it's something you say, isn't it? And Matson's argument is that he is equipped to take Waystar into the future, whereas Logan, who's too old and can't become a tech player, isn't. And I think it's interesting to compare these two characters in particular because I thought that Matson came off in this episode rather differently than he has in the previous couple. Instead of being very totally. depressed and antisocial as he was at Ken's birthday party and when he met Roman in episode eight, he, he seems to meet Logan confidently and Skarsgård looks like every inch the movie star, you know, or like a Roman consul, right, lounging in his sandals. Um, he, he I, I thought about the possibility of Matson, who was we discussed is sort of an empty vessel modeling himself after the person he's meeting and who he thinks the person wants to meet and how maybe Logan sees a, a younger body for himself or the, the son he wishes he had, you know, that fits in with the idea of Logan wanting to replace his kids somehow, you know, could Matson say to Logan, I'm the real you, you know, is he this year's model? <laughs> I also liked how Matson, who's been established as a non-traditional guy without much reverence for the media business, here he speaks of admiration for Logan and besides right. just the need to kind of suck up to him there he seems sincere when he calls him and he you know fist pumps tank man you know that reminded me of uh <laughs> and that reminded me of Elon Musk who's a model for this character I think someone who's you know you look at the business of Tesla and like somebody whose stock only seems to go up despite you know maybe the practical and material realities of the business and their capabilities and, and why a person like that might find something to admire in Logan's seeming invulnerability to scandal and the parallels that the show might be drawing there. 
Uh, Gabby, there's also a line here where Logan talks about nostalgia for America as it was, you know, when he arrived. Can you talk about that? And what do you think that means about Logan's state of mind in this episode? Yeah, I mean, he he has this line where he idealizes like the old America as like these gentle giants, and he, he laments the country now as both fat and scrawny, um, scrawny on meth and yoga, which is a great piece of writing. Um, I, I was wondering if he was just trying to appeal to Matson's Swedish sensibilities, or if this is something like he really believes that's factoring into his decision. Like it, he feels kind of wistful about it, the way he talks about it. And, you know, Logan tends to have like his own kind of flavor of philosophy. And this sort of felt like, you know, a Logan, uh, philosophical moment where, where he's reflecting, um, on what's changed and, and, um, you know, uh, Logan has always seemed to really love America, um, but through his kids, especially, the, you know, he's he's um, sort of in, getting entrenched into this boomer mindset that Americans are, you know, are soft and entitled. And um, he seems to have, you know, this grudging respect for Matson on the other hand. And I think um, him kicking Roman out is, is sort of, um, you know, a reflection of what he's feeling in this moment that... Um, you know that that people are not equipped now and and i think maybe his talking about you know americans being weak now is is maybe him thinking about um you know the ways that he's tried to 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 bring his kids up and elevate them although <laughs> in, in in very uh dysfunctional ways and he's um you know he he's sort of having having a tide change here where where he's maybe ready to let some of this in because um you know so, something has to give with waystar and um yeah like i said i i think he you know does have some um respect for matson which, which he, he you know he usually does not respect these types yeah i mean i'm a little curious as to what you all make of logan's willingness to sell to Gojo because it does seem to me um, Lily Loofborough pointed this out in a very good piece that she and Sam Adams did together for Slate that you know what Logan wants most of all is control right like he doesn't actually mm-hmm. need money he doesn't actually seem to care I mean he has so much money he doesn't really care about it right like what he really cares about is being able to control everything and being able to have power I'm not sure that this season charted his decision <laughs> to be less interested or th- that he's now less interested in control and power than he was. Right. I- I'm not sure that's charted as uh, particularly clearly. What did you make of that transition to I do think Logan 2.0? Yeah, I do think he's becoming more... Um, accepting and realistic about the fact that his company is a dinosaur company that is not growing, um, that the specter of tech that's been alluded to throughout the series is here, and that he has to make a move. And perhaps he would rather let someone like Matson, um, uh, you know, be in charge of the family jewels than his children, who he's, you know, already decided um, shouldn't run a lemonade you know, stand. To yes, do not have the chops for this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that the writers are really guided a lot by the principle of trying to adhere to reality. And sometimes this results in storylines that are a little bit difficult to track emotionally when they're dealing with characters who I think one of the primary characteristics of somebody like a Logan Roy 
um, is that he is rather impulsive and mercurial, right? So you do have decisions that don't really uh, seem to have a lot of precedent. Um, you know, I, we, we're, I was reading that uh, Michael Wolff biography of Murdoch, and this, this does kind of remind me of the bit where he talks about uh, Murdoch's courting and marriage to Wendy Dang, right? How this seems to sort of come out of nowhere. These sudden change in his, changes in his behavior uh, really do seem to kind of erupt. Um, quite suddenly, and even the people who are very close to him, like his children, can't quite figure out, you know, what, what's gotten into him. Um, I'd also point to, I think, um, a key moment in Logan's sort of development this season, uh, the end of the disruption, where the thing that happens in that episode is Logan being backed into a corner and being forced to reverse himself for maybe the first time we've seen all series, right, and, you know, allow the FBI into his building. Um, which is something uh, that we hadn't seen him do before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he kind of he, yeah. he kind of is always insisting that he's going to come up with, with a way to you know big dick everybody and have a smarter solution, as he says to Shiv in episode five about the board seat deal he makes with she makes with Hope Davis. He says, "I'd have figured something out, right?" Uh, he says in this episode, I, you know, I feel it in my bones," and Shiv's like, "Great, like can't argue with that." You know, this is just his style. Yeah, I mean, there there is just an element of opacity, I think, to the character. I'm not sure I have a great answer to that question of you know what the the emotional logic is necessarily because you know it's it's right. it's pretty irrational. I think with with Logan a lot of the time because it's always worked for him. It's always worked for him to kind of follow his impulses, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do we make of that uh, that anecdote, by the way, that Matson offers in that scene, which is a very like self consciously literary one, the one where he talks about, you know, it's something oh the that, Roman th- slaves one, the Roman slaves one. Yeah, it's the Zuckerberg anecdote. I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. He says that in ancient Rome they wanted to make all the slaves wear something that could identify them, but in the end they decided not to do it because they realized if all the slaves dressed the same they would see how many of them there were, that they would rise up and kill the masters. So I think, weirdly, the way that this anecdote is the most legible to me is the sort of subtextual one, where it's most legible as, you know, a story about what the the Roy kids realize in this episode, that they're stronger together and they can overthrow their father. But I was kind of puzzled as to, like, what what does Madsen quite mean by this? Because he then relates it back to, you know, we need a lot of people shitting us data and clicks or whatever if we're going to survive. Yeah. Uh, but it seemed rather oblique to me. I don't know if you, either of you had any thoughts on that, what you took away from that that uh, that line. Well, it's an anecdote that he sh- says uh, Mark Zuckerberg shared with him, which was sort of like <laughs> a funny tidbit about it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it, it's ruthless capitalism distilled into, you know, this, uh, this cute little story. And so maybe um, that scans well for Logan, you know, that, that <laughs> this guy's on the same page. He's not some... Uh, scandinavian socialist that that he he agrees that you know people need to work and they need to know their place Mm. and they need to not be given tools to um perhaps come together and and rise against their it's like harry lime and the third man right they're ants they're ants down there look at all those people (laughs) they look like ants you know there is that kind of like um you know that the elect that the elite have a secret knowledge that has to be kept from right. the people is a is a very very old idea. I mean that's something that the neocons believe. That's something that Strauss taught amongst the neocons, right? That the elect had but that in his case he thought it was like for the good of the country to hold the country together. The the elite need to feed 
the the people a series of myths that give them something to believe in that will hold the the people together and give them a conception of a nation even though the elect don't believe it they're doing it for everyone's good you know what i mean and and mm-hmm. this is that divorced of any ultimate aim besides greed and power right it's like you and me we're we're the elite and so we just have to figure out how to keep these people from knowing that if they just banded together they could come and take all our shit yeah that's that's interesting to me because that reminds me also of the um sort of elitism of hl mencken who's of course referenced in the character named jared mencken who's the the fascist presidential candidate in this season and the other thing that was interesting to me about this scene that i was just remembering hearing you talk about it was um uh the Ken has a line in Mass and Time of War where he's sort of laying out, you know, the state of things and how he sees the world. And he's talking about how, you know, people are killing themselves with guns and dope and we're fat fingered fucks who can only live on cream. And it kind of sounds like what Logan says in this scene about a, about America, right? I, was, I was just thought it was yeah. interesting, the sort of convergences between, you know, accidental, again, rhyming between father and son, but also as we ca- are kind of circling here, this uh, sort of elitist uh, mindset that all these characters sort of subconsciously share, even as they're on, uh, ostensibly on opposing sides. Well, it's all going to be fixed when Connor becomes president. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Um, you know, with lower, lower ta- his Ron Paul, I think his platform is a Ron Paul kind of thing, it seems to me. Yeah, right? we were it's, trying we to... Quite, it's You're low taxes, and, yeah. you know, I, I could imagine Connor Roy being like the gold standard. We have to go back to the gold standard. I, I think he probably has a, an entirely different standard that he wants us to be on. Right. Um, uh, but let's, okay, so let's, uh, oh my gosh, we're already an hour in. Traitors! You constrained and forced. What would you say if I should let you speak? Oh, villain. You could not beg for shame. Hark, wretches, how I mean to murder you. This one hand yet is left to cut your throats. Whilst that Lavinia between her stumps that hold the basin receives your guilty blood. You know your mother means to feast with me and calls herself revenge and thinks me mad. Hark, villains. I will grind your bones to dust. And with your blood and it, I'll make a paste. And of the paste, a coffin I will rear. So let's talk about uh, the arrival at the villa where there's this final confrontation with Logan. Uh, which we know, right, can't be the triumphant moment the siblings think it will be. Uh, the calculus is really different. And it all leans on Roman being able to stand up to his father, which is the thing we've seen several times this season that still most terrifies him. He's absolutely certain of his father's power over him. He can't imagine him dying and is terrified that the respect he feels he's only recently gained will be taken away. So it's impressive that Roman hangs in there through Logan's efforts to pressure him, first trying to get Roman to muscle Ken out of the room, then trying to separate him from his siblings. So when it's revealed that the gambit has failed... Roman finally seems heartbroken and makes this appeal to love. And Logan's response to that is about as contemptuous as any of the barbs he throws out in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, Gabby, do you want to talk about this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, also just the way Cox acted that it felt very theatrical. It was extremely powerful. Um, 
But I think uh, Logan really can't conceive of, of love outside of unconditional loyalty to him and appeasement of his whims. Um, you know, but he's also responding spitefully to Roman, uh, you know, finally slipping out of his control and, and finding solidarity with his siblings. Um, and I think this, this idea of solidarity and, and cooperation is very interesting. Um, you know, we were talking about a little bit earlier, but I would ultimately say in this episode that there was a, a reversion or perhaps even a regression uh, back to childhood solidarity between Rome, Shiv, and Logan, I mean, <laughs> and Kendall, Freudian slip, um, as opposed to sort of the negative regressions we've seen all season, you know, throughout the series. I think the kids, um, you know, have repressed memories of, of seeing each other at low points, but they, you know, they happened often and, and using each other to cope is probably their healthiest strategy and one they got back in touch with here. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the primary reason that they've rejected solidarity with one another is that Logan sees their cooperation as a betrayal and as an existential threat. And he's, you know, made, made it uh, uh, very clear to the kids. He conditioned them away from solidarity and, and their fear of him has obviously kept them, um, you know, neutered and mistrustful of one another. Um, we can think back to Logan and the dog cage stuff and um you know his early establishment of hierarchies among the children and the subsequent false or repressed memories that we've talked about a little bit the siblings have of one another um i thought the quick uh water pistols in bali anecdote before they're about to see dad was, yes. was fascinating roman roman recalls a vacation in bali where the kids planned to pull a prank and sort of, you know, water gun dad together and Ken and Shiv bailed uh, while Roman went through with it and incurred dad's wrath, you know, and Shiv says she doesn't remember. And I do believe that she she doesn't remember. It doesn't seem like she's lying there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think um, this is a, a vulnerable thing for Roman to say. Um, and it's, it's something that... Um, Maybe we've been waiting for one of the characters to say to Logan, just like, so, okay, we can't do this, we can't do that, but, um, you know, we love you. Like, does, does that mean anything? And uh, for Logan, in this case, you know, his response is, you came in here to betray me. How dare you talk about love? Um, that is his you know, conception is very limited conception of love, unfortunately. Yeah, it's an interesting scene to read in light of the episode where Roman has to give the interview about how much he loves Logan. Right. And he, he uses a <laughs> no good memory. Right, he uses a story of him and Connor and just substitutes Logan in where right. they, they go fishing. But also that he's incredibly uncomfortable saying that he loves his father. And, you know, mm -hmm. we realize by the end of that episode, the reason why is that he just knows that it's actually a point of vulnerability. His father is going to yeah. pounce on. And I'm not going to quote the line that Logan says at that point because it contains a word that I don't say out loud a, a disparaging word about gay people but but you know mm -hmm. like his response to that Cox's or Logan's response to that is complete contempt and so you know it, it, it's an interesting thing to read as a kind of setup for this scene where Roman does sincerely because I think sincerely in that moment wants to know whether his father loves him or not and wants to wants right. to say I love you dad do you love me and, you know, in a way, it's also a mirror of the number one boy moment 
at the end of season one yeah. where what Kendall needs is for his dad to say, I love you. And the way that they do it is a weird thing where it's like, I love you, by which I mean, you're going to do something useful to me and then I'm going to cover <laughs> up your <laughs> culpability in the death of this this waiter. But, you know, I mean, it, it, to me, it also comes back to Caroline saying in the penultimate episode that she couldn't bear to have dogs because Logan always has to kick things to see if they love him enough to come mm-hmm. back. But, you know, he kicked Roman enough that Roman doesn't come back. And it's not like his response to that is, oh, I fucked up. Right. His response to that is titanic rage. Yeah. And devastation. Really. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. It's not even that Roman doesn't come back. It's that he comes back in a way that is not pleasing to Logan, right? right. It's 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 not perfect supplication before him. It doesn't it doesn't flatter his ego uh, completely. It doesn't flatter his 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 narcissistic sense of of himself. Yeah, and there's a, a turning point in that scene where uh, Logan is kind of saying to Roman, "Come with me. Let's get away from these Jacobins." And um, you know, Sh- Shiv is like, you can't trust him. And, you know, that infuriates Logan. And, you know, Kendall kind of shakes his head in agreement. And, um, you know, that is extremely difficult uh, for Roman to sort of go through with and, and, and stick by his sibling's side because we know that Roman has always idealized dad um, in a way that that his siblings haven't um, certainly not Kendall and and Shiv more so as as the series has progressed should we talk a little bit about his appeal to Jerry there because this scene also seems in, among the many se- uh, things that uh, this episode pays off is it seems to spell uh, definitively at least for uh, you know the foreseeable future an end to the Roman and Jerry relationship, which we've held up throughout this mm-hmm. on previous episodes of this podcast, is perhaps within the show's reality a model of honest communication. Um, last episode, I think, showed that the risk of being entangled with Roman was too much a liability for Jerry. And here he's coming to her in sort of desperate need and asking her to take a big swing for him, which is not how their relationship has worked. And I don't think it's a betrayal necessarily because Jerry's always been honest about her priorities and who she mm-hmm. is. It's just that they're at this point where Roman's personal interests in the companies diverge uh, that Jerry can't go along anymore. It's, it is sad for both of them, but I don't. I don't see it necessarily as a betrayal of what that relationship's been. I think it has just reached its logical conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I think Roman's child brain perceives it as a betrayal, but Jerry has been very clear this whole season, um, you know, where she stands, this advice of avoiding mess, drawing lines, and prioritizing the notion of, does this serve my interests? And Roman clearly did not internalize that lesson as she wanted him to. And there is almost an I'm sorry look on her face she cares about him and she knows that he's not understanding at that moment. Um, so yeah, Roman stabbed by one mom, stabbed by another mom, condescended to by his dad's girlfriend uh, in the first scene. And, you know, yeah, we just needed something from Marsha for the superfecta for, for, you know, a real dagger into Roman's <laughs> psychology. Yeah. I would settle for any scene involving Marsha. Uh, uh, I yeah. know. She had that one line to carry, that cheeky uh, line about bringing the omelet to her room, kind of trying to, uh, you know, exercise her her authority a little bit. But um, Carrie seems really unflapped. I mean, uh, she's, you know, 
feeding Logan these smoothies. Who knows what they're doing? Again, I just want to say quickly about the maca root thing. Uh, the kids might be reading a little too much into this because as far as I know, maca root, everything that I've heard and, and ever read about it is more for uh, amping up your sex drive. And, and I've never really heard it uh, about like sperm quality, uh, although you know I'm sure it's true. But um, it is possible that, you know, he's just drinking maca because he wants the energy to have sex. But I do think either way, even just the notion of a, of a, another Roy, a younger Roy in a completely different generation is, um, very interesting and obviously terrifying to the kids and, and part of what, uh, you know, maybe is, is driving some of their, their solidarity here. Yeah. I think it's the subtextual level that, that, uh, plot, that that plot point really works on, right? Just the idea that he wants to replace these kids, you know, a line, something that came to mind when I was watching, especially Cox kind of going off in this scene and screaming at his kids, uh, was the, uh, that key monologue from the film, The Lion in Winter, when King Henry is screaming at his children. He had three whiskered things, but he disowned them. You're not mine! We're not connected! I deny you! None of you will get my kingdom! I leave you nothing, and I wish you plague! May all your children breach and die! And I had forgotten until I was... Uh review looking back over that film that that also kind of revolves around a plot point where henry is uh wants to conceive an heir with his mistress right to replace his his, his grown sons um but it's it, it, but it's just it's just sort of the subtextual yeah. level I it think has there. been known known to happen to powerful you know older men that they like isaac said literally are just done with their families and and ready yeah um you know to start a new generation i mean murdoch did it it was a huge point of contention with his three older kids from his second marriage, uh, sort of, you know, mirroring that here. But um, it, it wouldn't be shocking, although I don't know what's going on with Marsha and her um, settlement. She certainly is, um, you know, getting what she needs out of Logan. She She's asking for a lot and he's, he's giving it to her. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess this, this is maybe setting up, uh, you know, a divorce for next season. Yeah, or they'll drop it like they've dropped so many other things. <laughs> Uh, it's you know, I mean, in the first season, the threat is, um, you know, her kids, right? Her son yeah. specifically, yeah. Uh, who mm-hmm. just never appears on the show again, I think, after the first first season. You know, they, yeah. they're talking about him in every episode of the first season. And he just like they, he's going to take over just, animation. Yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah. just sort of ne- like that's just done, you know. So, I mean, I, I, I think we don't know. I do think there's a bunch of interesting things they've set up that could pay off the next season. The Justin Kirk character, you know, whatever's going to go on with Logan yes. and, and his marriage. You know, we don't actually know how this deal is structured. So it's unclear. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. is Logan still going to be in charge of ATN or does he really just want to cash out and retire? Yeah. You know, um, uh, what's going on with any paid? of that stuff? We're not really sure about that. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah which, you know, it maybe is this is jumping ahead, but I am going to posit here my contrarian argument, which is that while no one in the episode realizes it, everyone except for Roman is actually getting exactly what they want. Logan gets to cash out. 
Kendall gets his father is no longer in charge, which is the thing that he wanted. He gets an enormous amount of money. If he is worth $2 billion in stock and the stock price is going to go up, he is now worth more money than he was at the beginning. Shiv presumably gets to see ATN become BuzzFeed Facebook News or whatever the fuck, you know, uh, Madsen's going to turn it into. Tom gets the power he wants. Greg gets the power he wants. Other than Roman, who actually loses out here? And what do they actually lose i mean i know that we don't know the details of the deal but i think that there is a way to look at it where you're like actually you all come out pretty well you're still really super rich yeah you know sure, like yeah. Uh, on a practical level for sure i think it's more the um you know the stabbing by their parents and the fact that they had you know finally come to this consensus uh organically without the jockeying and the posturing they you know shift called it ripping the band-aid and and um, they talk about, you know, Logan's UTI and fucking his secretary and the Aronson episode, all his liabilities, um, you know, sort of accumulation. And, and Ken has been there about Logan's capacities and his trustworthiness since day one. But, you know, there were other limitations there for him. And, and Shiv got there recently with dad. Um, and then finally, Roman, it's like the antithesis to all the triangulation we've been talking about this season. And, and it feels like it could be this triumphant moment. And I think it boils down to, again, what the show is really about, which is um, abusive parenting. Right. And that's what happened here. Yeah. <laughs> and that is perhaps what is most heartbreaking, even if, you know, the mechanics of the deal are, are you know, far from being sorted out. Yeah. And I mean, a deal like this, I mean, uh, I, I think that it's, I think someone pointed out online that like a merger like this is probably going to involve some sort of like federal approval. You know, they may they're going to need regulatory. Yeah. Approvals. I think that I think that this deal is far from being done and it's, it'll be a big part of the next season. But we do need to I get hope on that means to... we get more Linda Egan. Oh, Linda I, Egan. I, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. Yeah. So I say Egan. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry. I hope that stuff. I've actually interviewed her. I said her yeah, name. Eamon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I hope that means we get more of Linda. Linda Eamon who is like one of the great actors of her generation and was so wonderful on Lodge 49, the dearly missed Lodge yes. 49. And, uh, uh, you know, has a few scenes in this season, but it's such a, a brilliant, consummate actor. I, I, I hope so we get good. to see a lot more of her in the in the new season. Yeah. Maybe yeah, the have... president, maybe the raisin as his fuck final fuck you will try to block this uh, merger <laughs> and screw them. I wouldn't mind that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, when we eventually do our episode ranking all the guest stars on this season, she'll she'll be pretty high up there, I think. Uh, but oh, she was. But so before good. we move on to because the, the last big piece of this episode is uh, the sort of Shiv and Tom piece of it. Uh, I just wanted to say a little bit about uh, Kieran Culkin in this episode to wrap up our discussion about Roman uh, and just say, looking back at you know the last few episodes in this whole season, I have to say that I think Culkin is the MVP of the season. You know, I think about the way that Logan encouraging Roman to take himself more seriously uh, over the course of the last couple of seasons has in some ways modeled Colkin expressing himself more in the performance. You know, in the first couple of seasons, he's playing kind of point. the little br the little brother to Kendall, who's kind of the show's de facto protagonist at that point. He's the comic partner to Strong's deathly straight man. And the dispersal of this season was a big loss in some ways for a dynamic that really gives the show a lot of juice. But it did allow Roman as a character 
and Culkin's performance to blossom. I talked last episode about how, you know, in terms of using his body, he uses the whole instrument, right? The way he can seem wound up tight and compressed, and he can also climb and explore and spread out over the space of a scene. And there are a lot of reaction shots on Culkin in this episode, and even thinking back to hunting uh, uh, in that scene at the end of Bore on the Floor, where he had to absorb the full force of his father's disapproval. I, I think that here it's so much more convincingly and suggestively acted where so much of that implied history of abuse and want and lack of love is present in his voice and his face. I think that Colkin has the whole series. He's been a glue member of this ensemble without really standing out necessarily. But I think the last few episodes, you know, thinking from, I think episode six on in the season where he has just a barn burner scenes in each of those have been his peak as like a comic and dramatic performer. That's that's what I, that's what I say. About. Yeah, I I think he's grown incredibly as an actor. I I mean I would completely agree that the back half of this season he's done astounding stuff that frankly I wasn't sure he was capable of. Uh, you know, for a lot of the first two seasons, I would have said he's the weak link of the cast. He does the same shtick over and over again. He has this sort of intro improv student bad habit of using the word fucking when he's trying to think of a line to say in an improvisation. He'll be like. It's just the uh, the fucking uh, the fucking fucking uh, fucking punchline that I've just thought up, you know. Yeah. And it's like anyone who's taken an improv class will tell you that's like a bad a bad habit. That's bad improv, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but like he is fucking amazing in the second half of this season, starting so particularly good. in Kendall's birthday party where he gets to revel in and really reveal the the extremes of Roman's monstrousness. You know, once he sort mm-hmm. of gets in touch with that on a really deep level in that episode, he really just lets it rip from then on out. And it's a really fascinating, complicated, funny, weird, perverse. And I don't not talking about the sex stuff, but just perverse, <laughs> you know, strange, singular performance that I couldn't imagine another actor doing in that role. I, I've been unbelievably impressed, frankly. Yeah, I, I would say it started in, in episode six with Jared Mankin yeah. and yeah. The, the chemistry there. He is a fucking um, T-Rex when he said that line, for example, right? <laughs> yeah, his his descent into fascism, perhaps. I just wanted to w- mention one more element of the the final scene and, and Logan and the kids. And it's it's been an ongoing theme throughout the series and something that we talk about. Um, we know that Logan resents his kids for being born into tremendous privilege and that in his eyes them not having had to suffer for it like he did uh, is a black mark. And it's primarily played out as a Logan-Ken dynamic. If you recall Austerlitz, Ken Mm -hmm. says to him, you know, you're so fucking jealous of what you've given your kids and nobody is ever missing. Logan says to Ken, what have you had your entire life I didn't give you? I blame myself. I spoiled you and now you're fucked, which is perhaps a moment of self-awareness, but feels to me more like Logan wanting to twist the knife. Um, you know, he, he says after that, I'm sorry that you're nothing. You're curdled cream. Maybe you should collect sports cars or something. But for the for before the world, nah, you're not made for it, which sort of recalls their dinner conversation in episode eight um, when he says some people aren't made for this world. And, and the problem with all of this is that since they were born, Logan has sentimentalized his business and lured his kids into this all encompassing obsession and fantasy that he wants them to take over and keep it all in the family. 
and he didn't set himself up for much else in the way of success. He, he nurtured these delusions and ambitions. And, and, you know, Jeremy Strong uses the term individuation a lot when he talks about Kendall. And it's true. Logan did not foster a process of individuation for his children. Um, he irreparably impaired these kids' ability to form complete personalities. You know, and if you read more about what individuation is um, what it, and what it does to a person if you don't uh, successfully go through it, um, it's textbook Roy Kidd's dysfunctions. So yeah, I, I've seen a lot of people on the internet saying that Logan is right when he says, you know, make your own pile and a bit of grit, adversity like me, and that the kids are s spoiled, corrupted brats. And sure, he's not wrong. Um, but I also believe that that completely eludes the context of this, the, the kid's upbringing. You know, and to some extent, it's it's the embodiment of the show's message, right? It doesn't matter when you're born into that much wealth, you'll inevitably end up corrupted. But this is also, again, a show about parenting. And Logan and Caroline have inflicted all sorts of violence on their children since they were young. Um, and violence that stunted and wounded them through adulthood. And I, I just don't think that can be discounted in these conversations about entitlement and being born rich versus being self-made. Well, Absolutely. Totally. And we and you know speaking of the wounds that are dealt to these kids, we need to get to the uh, betrayal that kind of buttons this episode, uh, which is the implication not stated explicitly but clearly uh, demonstrated uh, through through the uh, the visuals that uh, Tom has uh, sold out his wife uh, and his uh, uh, and and Ken and Roman. Uh, to Logan by warning him of this gambit that they were going to use the bylaws and the divorce agreement uh, to block a sale of the holding company uh, and then to quickly uh, stage a coup by throwing him out and uh, telling everybody that he was ill and announcing that he was being deposed on ATN. Uh, so Tom not only doesn't do that, he, uh, he places a call uh, seemingly to this lawyer that he had previously been on the phone with in episode three. Uh, what is it? Rex, uh, Rex Hendon, um, who... Yep. who uh, we're not sure exactly what the significance of that is, but that name comes up again. Caroline mentions it on the phone. So seemingly this is some sort of conduit, a fixer, a go-between uh, that Tom has been using as a back channel uh, to kind of uh, 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 protect Logan's interests throughout the season, perhaps. Uh, and But there's that very sort of like Godfather ending like shot of Logan clapping his hand on Tom's shoulder in this embrace of him kind of like as a son as we certainly have him seen doing with his actual sons in just the scene before but in a way that he's never really acted uh, with Tom before there's a real sense of like kind of smug pride uh, and uh, a satisfaction there uh, that's the kind of relationship that Logan wants to have with his actual sons right of like good you did my bidding right but that's framed like through the door like Kay seeing Michael at the end of the God Father, which is also a shot that I felt that the uh, ending of season one played on, uh, where Ken is sort of, you know, escorted out of the room where Log where he leaves Logan, where the decisions are made, and where Ken is sort of permanently shut out of. So I think that the Godfather is something that's like very uh, much on the show's mind, but this is, I think, the biggest thread that gets paid off. We've been, t in this episode, we've been talking all season about how there seems to be kind of track being laid with Tom. Something is Something, uh, something's coming there, and you know, talking so much about the strain that Kendall is under, uh, something has to give there, and something really has to give with Tom, right? There, like, there's so much is changing in his, uh, his status at the company where he feels constantly uh, that you know people are talking about him as the Christmas tree, right? That they can just hang ornaments on him, hang criminal charges on him, and he's his wife is now explicitly telling him that she doesn't love him. You know, it's only so much a guy can take. Right. Uh, oh my God. 
Yeah, there was, uh, you know, I don't think it's this big scheme that some people have speculated, but, you know, it's rather rather a, a, a gradual shift where he's, you know, he's realizing that he's not protected by his wife. Um, you know, so so throughout the season, there's been some secret calls. Um, you know, there's the the moment in the shareholder meeting of the thanks son and the papa moment, um, the tenderness he shows to Logan there, him offering himself up to Logan. Uh, Logan's, you know, I'll remember, nudge, nudge. And then, of course, the, you know, the prescient, I've never seen Logan get uh, fucked once that, in retrospect, make this outcome, you know, quite plausible. Yeah, I mean, you know, to get back to my point that plot requires causality, it requires something Mm -hmm. causing something to happen. Otherwise, you have a series of events. Tom is the character who has the most coherent arc in some ways throughout all three seasons of the, of the show uh, in that, you know, you can absolutely see from point a to point Z, how we get from Tom in the first episode to Tom in the final episode in a way that is, is, is coherent and um, clear and fascinating, even as it goes in unexpected directions. And I think that we should not sleep on how consistently great Matthew McFadden has been throughout this show would never um would never dare to that he does so much often with just like his cheek muscles you know what i mean like like (laughs) there's a way in which there's moments of incredible restraint in this performance where so much is lurking beneath the surface uh he has a particular style of selling a joke with a line reading that feels singular to him and is incredible his chemistry with everyone is off the charts he plays a character who's I, I you know a coward in many many ways right um and despicable but makes him unbelievably compelling even as even at his most uh weaselly and he's often given by the writers the the best bits is there anything funnier than his description of eating a prison meal as being like invading afghanistan you know, or the meal that he then orders later in that episode with Kendall. But then he has that amazing moment where he orders that meal with Kendall. And then two minutes later, he has that, you know, you know what they're doing up in that suite. They're picking the next president, which is this like incredibly, you know, the depths of pathos for that character in that moment. Um, I do think that there's something a little strange in Shiv begging her father to spare Tom in the finale of season two and then immediately taking Tom for granted at the beginning of season three from then on out. Um, uh, but still they, they roll with it in a way that is, that is really fascinating. You know, that's going somewhere. Um, and where it goes, I think is, is, is really great. And I just, you know, like I said, I, I, I think on some level, Tom is the actual protagonist of the show because he is the one who changes the most. Um, uh, uh, and, um, I just want, more and more Tom. And then also Tom Always. and Greg. I know you're a little sick of Greg, I think, Gabby, if I remember correctly. But <laughs> but I just want the Tom and Greg show where I, they I go enjoy around them having, together, yes. having misadventures. And Tom, you know, Greg says, no, do you know? Uh, yeah. And Tom comes up with <laughs> no, new euphemisms for his height. <laughs> Yeah, we can talk about Greg here because I, I, I really like, you know, when I, one of my rewatches, I really was just so fascinated by the details of that scene where, you know, Tom gets the call from Shiv and you can see him making the decision in that moment, right? Where he asks, he does ask Shiv, he's like, where do I fit in in this play? And she's like, I don't know, somewhere high up. And he's like, great, okay, I've, I've got to make a different play here because yeah. she's not she's not thinking of me. 
This is not um, yeah. and in that scene where you know they sit down, there's that diegetic music, which is like almost sort of ominous. That party music that's playing in the background again. So another very Godfather scene. You have a deal being struck at a wedding. Yeah, and it's like it's at dusk. And, yeah, you come yeah. to me on this day of my ex-wife's <laughs> wedding. On the day of my wife's <laughs> mother's wedding. Uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> It, and it pays off that kind of Nero and Sporus story that everybody memed to death. Uh, mm-hmm. But it pays that it pays that off because you know Greg is like actually being castrated here by because he's uh, abandoning his romantic options with Comfrey and the contestant in favor of uh, uh, Tom, his unconsummated relationship with his mentor and and Bright Star Buffalo, Bright Star <laughs> Buffalo, right? And uh, and then and Tom, you know, <laughs> stabbing his wife at the same time. So that story really does come true. You know, the sh- uh, the show uh, does love its sort of references to uh, to to ancient times. Uh, but it, it's 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 a terrific scene, and I uh, yeah, I mean to the extent extent that uh, I've felt frustrated with Greg's material this season, it has been to the extent that the show has not convincingly integrated him into the plot. You know, when Greg feels like right. a sitcom kind of hanger on or like a reality TV character, as I said last week, who's, you know, just is dying for screen time and his storylines are running out of juice. That's where I'm like, you know, kind of what are we doing here? Because the character doesn't have a lot of like pathos to him to kind of justify his presence otherwise if the material is not biting if it's not funny uh then i'm, then I'm kind of frustrated by it but to see him together with tom and to see them kind of plotting and forging a future together with the two of them as like ceo and coo at waystar great yes i'm thrilled right. i'm thrilled about that yes the comfrey thing never worked for me with her and greg i actually got <laughs> mad because i read that there were some scenes cut from too much birthday like an extended uh view of shiv doing the dance and we only got a couple seconds of it and then i think to like uh tom and comfrey's really just like unremarkable exchanges in that episode and it makes me angry um uh, <laughs> but I, I i do agree that that tom um you know bringing greg in it holds much promise for the future but yeah i i hope you know that uh I think Dasha did okay in certain parts of the season, but I I hope that it's not something that continues, and at least in terms of her relationship uh, with Greg, because that is just it's not interesting. You know, and and I it, it's not it, interesting because I mean again it's like this is not a show where the romantic relationships are what powers the show in in any way, right? right? Like <laughs> I mean they are, but in a yeah yeah yeah. But I mean way. like what's what's the the true romance, so to speak, is between Greg and Tom. It's these these two you know these two <laughs> yes. clown characters characters who who can't quit each other who come into these sort of endless bits together of 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 abuse and codependence and yet somehow manage to muddle through and keep advancing as the show goes on well it's because that dynamic that they have that we've commented on many times of this solidarity of being the outsiders who are in the family but not of it is a more real basis for a relationship than any of the other sort of power relations on the show. So that's the thing that keeps them coming back mm-hmm. to each other. Totally. Um, totally. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Comfrey, I think, in the end, ultimately, I would just say that all of these scenes are scenes that could have been given to Juliana Canfield as just far superior character performance in every respect. So I would just say that.
<laughs> but um, I do want to talk a little bit about Shiv, and I don't, I don't know. I, my, my thoughts on this are not really sort of definite, but I would like to talk a little bit about this character who, you know, it might be kind of counterintuitive, as it might seem, for an episode that ends on this very cathartic image of her betrayal, which in many ways is exactly what she deserves. But the idea of kind of sympathy for Shiv is something that I've been kind of uh, wrestling with, because this season's been so hard on her. And the discussion I've heard of her character, including sometimes on this podcast, I think has fallen into these two unsatisfying and reductive lenses of, I can't believe that Shiv is awful now, versus I always knew that Shiv was awful. You know, and neither of which are very helpful <laughs> ways to look at characters right. in drama and especially on this show where a certain sort of moral base baseness is i think taken for granted and snook makes it easy to root against this character because her primary move is what we see in that final shot that icy stare and those narrowed eyes that refusal to let injury or wounded pride show in a lot of ways mm -hmm. i think and i don't mean this as a slight per se but it's not as fun or expressive a performance as say colkin or strong give on the show which is why i really relished her getting in on the far and you know retired janitors but i think part of the reason that the character is so easy to dislike is because she's so committed to a path that reads to us as obviously detestable to shill for her father and be a prop as a woman right but that's the show i think i do think the show is sincerely trying to explore this idea through the character of the sort of narrow range of options available to women who take yeah. for granted the idea of self-actualization through the structure of corporate power i think the show doesn't want to be didactic so it doesn't hit this too hard but just like the Roy's relationships with their father can be projected onto these larger dynamics of American power, Shiv's path is a synecdoche for this sort of larger idea about women in business, whether you want to call it the girl boss phenomenon or something that's been happening for many decades. You know, this, this, this conditioning to believe that this is the only avenue for real self-actualization and then this constant brutal suppression of the self once that path is chosen. But I do wonder where the character goes from here, because it does seem to me at the end of the season, like Kendall, there is a need for a, a transformation or a release here. And I think the idea of her being really trapped by her sense of triangulation and her cynicism was expressed as dramatically and eloquently as the show could in episode six, what it takes. You know, Shiv outside the company mm -hmm. with her political career in ruins. That's a story I'm really interested to follow. And I really would like to see uh, what the show does with the character from here. Yeah, I do think it's really interesting that we find hypocrisy more despicable than sincere evil right right that like shiv is a hypocrite right because she's basically working for bernie sanders and then goes to work for fox news like that's her career path yeah. right and so we're like oh you're a fucking traitor and a hypocrite and we find that despicable but it's interesting that we find that despicable whereas we get to revel in the despicableness of roman or you know whatever it is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. um uh, and I do think that obviously there's something gendered to people's dislike of the character. It, it does remind me, I know we've talked about Breaking Bad a couple of times here, right? Yeah. But of um, uh, uh, the, yeah. the dislike for the Skylar, Skylar who is, you know, a victim and trapped. And then they find this interesting, I mean, she's, she's such an interesting, complicated character and the sort of fan reaction that she was this, you know, castrating bitch who needed to be killed because she was stopping Walt from doing what he wanted or, you know, whatever it was, was, was so outrageous and, and gross. And I, and I do feel like 
Shiv is as complex a character as the others. She does not get to have fun the way that they, or to be fun the way that they get to have fun. Her jokes aren't as funny. Do you know, like she's not a funny, as funny and compelling and charismatic a character uh, uh, as many of her siblings. Um, But I, I, I do think that, um, I guess I don't know that I have sympathy for Shiv exactly because the part of the show that is satirical is that I'm not sure how much sympathy we're meant to have for anyone in it. But I do have sympathy for Sarah Snook, who I think is doing great work in, 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 with an interesting character and um, uh, 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 should get credit for that, even as the character is not ingratiating. For me, with Shiv this season, um, what has been most striking is the way that we've learned that Logan has absolutely no respect for her whatsoever. I mean, we're introduced to Shiv as, like, she's the favorite, uh, all the pinky stuff. Even in this season, you know, the Logan's whole, my only daughter, and you won't be ashamed of me. When it comes down to it, uh, even for her, it's all bluster and narcissism. Um, He actually seems to despise her in this final scene well and um, he despises her because she showed him up she saved the company when he was incapacitated exactly. and he can't handle that she actually could possibly run things and so he has to right. destroy her um you know that's the moment she doesn't realize it she thinks that she's put herself back on top and what she's actually done is sown the seeds of her own destruction because there's no way that logan can stand yeah. that while he was incapacitated his daughter saved him Right. And I don't know, perhaps this is me being naive, but until this season, I I, I wasn't quite aware of what uh, just like a truly stone cold misogynist Logan is. Um, That impression he did of her at the end, while while very funny on Cox's part, I mean, really revealed that contempt. Um, And I do feel for Shiv because I think, you know, in a way things have been upended for her. We see her a little bit... um, more together although you know she has her own issues in season one she's um you know outside of the business and you know just the the downfall from from the premiere of season two to here uh, while at times has been satisfying because Shiv has certainly done some some detestable things um I I see her really as just kind of this lost girl and um, you know, totally shattered sense of identity. And, you know, like the one thing she had was being her dad's favorite and, and he hates her. Um, and I think in season four, we'll probably pick up on her uh, in a depressive episode, kind of she already was uh, these last couple episodes and or, you know, doing whatever she can to keep Tom and Waystar close. I think she'll probably try and get pregnant now because um, now that Tom has bested her, and, and, you know, that threat has been going on for a while. Um, you know, this would be a good opportunity to, to do that and to keep him close, which is a terrible way to think about, you know, having a child. But it fits for this for this uh, world. I don't think they're going to get divorced. No. Um, and I don't think she's already pregnant. Um, you know, people said she was like holding her uterus or something in the mm-hmm. final scene. But I think she was just shocked and. Um, it, it just wouldn't make sense. She was still on contraception a couple episodes ago when Todd wouldn't have sex with yeah. her. And they just had the embryo yeah. embryo talk. So I think that's a little bit of a, my you know, My question is this for the room. Will she drink more of their agricultural wine? Oh, my God. That was so funny. And it reminded me, actually, like them using the term agricultural 
um, of in season two when Shiv is making fun of Tom at a dinner party with Tabs and yeah, Norman, yeah. she calls his walk an, an an agricultural walk, and he's like, "Hey, Shiv, fuck you." <laughs> it's like the first time we've seen Tom really stand up to Shiv. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think she should drink more of the wine, if only because she could clearly use some hobbies. I mean, I I, I think that 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 thread about Logan's misogyny and about the misogyny of the world he inhabits is one of the key things this season has been about. Um, and the key thing yep. that has been explored through the Shiv character. If there's a critique there, it's maybe that that feels not quite organic to who Shiv is so much as external circumstances that are being imposed on the character that have kind of defined her arc for this season. But I do nevertheless think that the way the, the myriad ways that the show illustrates the just sort of uh, intersecting axes of uh of sexism that are imposed on shiv and especially in uh in episode six which is just suffused with that awful libidinal uh hostile sexuality Mm -hmm. you know the incestuous subtext of sort of threatening vibe towards women the entire episode um i think that this show has really been intentionally about this while at the same time they're very they're very aware that they could come off as quite strident to do a whole explicit plot line about you know misogyny in the workplace so they've approached it in a rather uh you know backdoor way that i think has been often very effective yeah and i think you've mentioned this previously brendan that um Shiv derives confidence from her sexuality and um, that seems like something that is fading and probably um, not <laughs> uh, that that it's probably intermingled with this sort of Electra complex that we've talked about the more she's getting rejected by her dad and realizing that she can't fuck her dad to get into his good graces that um, some of that is waning and that that also makes me think about um, you know something that's been a Twitter, um, which is Shiv's fashion sense this season. It's very funny because if you look at articles from like a, a couple of years ago, it's like how to uh, get Shiv Roy's looks for less, like the, the hottest <laughs> fall, inspir- uh, f- fall inspiration for your wardrobe. Like people were swooning over her yeah, wardrobe. Yeah. And in this season, everyone's like, Shiv looks like shit all the time. Um, and I just want to say that, yeah, you know, I, I think these choices are deliberate and reflect sort of where she's at personally and professionally and you know Shiv really has no women in her life who've uh you know she's been super close to and um you know usually uh girls have women in their lives typically their mothers and friends who help them understand what is flattering on their body um to help them develop a sense of you know personal style we have no reason to believe she really has had any f- close friends to explore fashion with and get feedback from, which is sort of like a rite of passage when you're a young woman coming of age. Um, and, you know, the the best Shiv looks are from season one and two when she's more in touch with herself and excited about her future. Um, and this season, I would say her best look was at the political summit, that gray dress, um, which is, you know, the arena where she feels the most confident. You can also recall uh, her dress in D.C., which I think maybe is my favorite Shiv outfit of all time. It was gorgeous. But everything else, else this season felt, you know, mismatched, ill-fitting, somehow both 20 years too old and too young for her. Um, I thought the polka dot jumpsuit was very cute in this episode, but I was aghast at how bad the actual wedding look was for her. Uh, first of all, her dress was white. 
Which, look, like, I, I got married at City Hall. I don't really care about these um, Emily Post-type rules, but it's still not really what you're supposed to do, wear white to a wedding. Um, again, the neckline, just horrible. It, it wasn't tailored well. It was both matronly and childlike, and at times it looked like she could barely walk in those clunky heels that she was in. The hat was terrible, too, like something you wear to a first communion i don't know and i saw you know so many beautiful fascinators which are the you know english hats that sit on your forehead in the background (laughs) of the wedding and it's just so sad to me and i understand that shiv like isn't into fashion that's totally fine you don't have to be you know super into couture because you're rich but it's more that when you have that much money it's bizarre to look like you woke up and just threw something on that was in the back of your closet um, at her wedding, her rehearsal dinner dress and her wedding dress are both very simple but totally beautiful. It really does feel like Shiv is depressed and can't be bothered, um, which does make me feel for her. And just as a disclaimer, like Shiv, I am also a woman of curves, so I am in no way criticizing her body. Um, I actually have a lot of empathy for her because it can be really hard to dress yourself when you don't have a mainstream skinny frame body type. Um, And especially when you're not feeling great about yourself. So, you know, and then if you kind of contrast this with Carrie's very sleek feminine fashion and her physical confidence, um, it's interesting because Carrie's been sort of an adversary for Shiv for at least several episodes. And, um, you know, Logan sort of has this uh, respect for Carrie, whatever shape that comes in. He's valued her opinions a few times this season and, you know, is now, I guess, romantically involved with her. Um, and I think that's reflected in Carrie's presentation. She has this uh, like canary yellow button dress she's wearing in the first scene, which is gorgeous. And the polka dot dress went on the bow when Logan makes that weird comment about good look- what a good-looking woman uh, to Roman. And then, you know, she's kind of in full business mode later on. She's in this all-rose suit with a satin shirt. It's just, like, very strikingly beautiful. And I kind of noticed that, that, you know, unicolor suits or at least suits of the same general shade are used to sort of convey professional power on this show we saw it with rome in in all black for too much birthday and i was also reminded of shiv and Walter in her cornflower blue suit which is a fan favorite and um in that episode she's obviously in a high from the from from being uh given the spot from her dad at summer palace you know, and I'm sure there's a million other examples I'll find when I am inevitably rewatching this off season. Shall we? Um, uh, we've run rather long here. Um, I yeah. think we before we close the episode, I think we need to talk about you know, of course, Connor and Willa, the happy couple, right? Who, uh, who's, who's fine? Uh, Connor finally wears down uh, Willa here. They, uh, she says, "Fuck it, fuck it forever." Right, uh, and there's a really interesting, uh, there's that scene early in the episode that we haven't talked about, but the scene where the siblings stage kind of an intervention for Kendall, which, you know, <laughs> I've compared Kendall to Christopher Moltisanti before, and this, uh, this scene does not devolve into quite the spectacle that Chris Moltisanti's intervention did on The Sopranos, uh, but it does, I, again, hit home this point of Connor's exhaustion and annoyance with his siblings of not being afforded the respect he feels that he's owed as the actual eldest sibling, whereas Kendall is the pretend eldest sibling. Uh, and, you know, we have people, it's often been joked about, you know, that the structure of this, of the series, you know, is going to have, you know, one sibling ascendant. We've had a, a season one where Kendall was the sort of the de facto protagonist and season two, it seemed like it was supposed to be, you know, Shiv's time, ladies night. Uh, season three has been the Roman season and, you know, I'm going to call the shot now, you know, they've been planting the seeds. 
next season we may have uh, a merger that's going to need some political approval we're going to have potentially a presidential election and it's going to be connor season i'm calling it he has he is polling very close to one percent <laughs> they could ship merkel is on the phone race. yeah yeah yeah. merkel is on the phone uh, i just hope we get more of alan ruck and that he has something to do so in the terrific new season. yeah you know what i mean i mean i feel in a weird way you know, a lot of the dynamics with the characters kind of mimic some of the struggles uh, on a meta level with with the show and that, you know, Connor doesn't have enough to do. And then his frustration on the show is that he doesn't have enough to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, that yeah. part of the diffuseness of having Kendall separated from the rest of the family is that there's just not enough of 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 those wonderful scenes like the episode of Austerlitz or, you know, whatever, um, or right. everything having to do with Willa's disastrous play where she learns that she's not <laughs> a commercial playwright. Um, you know, I was very grateful for the uh, political convention episode because we got a chance for Connor to, to shine a little more. And I just hope we get mm-hmm. more of him in, in the new season, you know, um, I, I, I think so Alan too. Ruck's yeah. just a fascinating actor. He always has been, you know, ever since Ferris Bueller. Um, uh, you know, he, it's a weird character. It's a weird performance uh, that that I find very compelling. And I just I just hope that there is a purpose they find for him in the new season. Yeah, I mean, for me, what's what's been most compelling about Connor is what we've learned this season about his role as sort of the father mm-hmm. to the kids where where, where Logan couldn't be one. Um, and in this episode, we learn about him not seeing dad for three years um, when, when Kendall is sort of still in his uh, delusional state. And um, that stuff has been really interesting for me. Also, what Connor knows about the company, what he saw um, as the eldest, um, you know, and, and it was a really kind of touching scene there with the, with the intervention when and he's kind of holding on to Ken. I mean, you can imagine that, um, you know, Connor was was probably a pretty lonely kid. And when Kendall was born, he was must have been really excited to have a little brother. And I don't know where the three year gap comes from, but it must have been you know something very painful for Connor. So they've laid a lot of interesting groundwork. And uh, if, if it doesn't pay off, then, you know, Isaac, you're vindicated because I'll, I'll be upset. You know, what's, what's interesting about <laughs> Connor in that first season is that when he first shows up, you know, he's sort of in the best place of all of them in that he's not mm-hmm. involved in the company. He's not sucked right. into his dad's evil gravity. He has arranged mm-hmm. his life in a way that where he's content. He doesn't have a job. He has a sex worker girlfriend, but that seems to work for him, you know, uh, yeah. uh, et cetera and so forth. It, doing his thing doing out his in New thing Mexico. In Australia, it's out in New Mexico. And, you know, episode by episode that just collapses until we get to this point where it turns out, you know, he's actually, of course, incredibly miserable, you know? Um, uh, but the thing that really just like all of them that makes him incredibly miserable is that he's spending time around this fucked up family. Whereas if he just went back to Austerlitz, he'd probably be okay. Yeah. It's a great spot. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to be hanging out there in the, uh, you know, maybe, you know, you got to be careful around the swimming pool there, but it's a, it's a nice spot. I guess we should go ahead and start to wrap up this episode. It's difficult to know how to wrap up, you know, the finale and the whole season of this show. Um, We can go around and say any stray details that we forgot to mention, any small lines or moments that we just appreciated from this episode. Uh, Gabby, does anything come to mind for you? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's probably so many lines that I I could go through, but I I thought it was kind of poetic that uh, the C-suite was present in the room, kind of bearing witness to this awful final scene with Logan and his kids 
you know, these these soldiers of Logan that have had a little bit more airtime this season, a little bit more development yeah. just in so far as we see how loyal they are to Logan. And they're just sort of sitting down, looking at their phones, doing their work, and they're watching this, um, you know, catastrophe unfold. And, and um, you know, it's just... It's a little unnerving just the way that, um, you know, Logan's boundaries with that stuff are, are non-existent. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick out two things. Uh, Greg's very Bart Simpson-like selling of his soul. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, like, like when Bart <laughs> sells his soul for, to Millhouse for $5. Um, uh, that moment was such a great turning point for that character and that, you know, it's delivered with such relish. Um, and I've also enjoyed, you know, when we're going to the minor functionaries in the Logan cinematic universe, um, his body man. Uh, who has emerged? Oh, yeah, we love yeah, Colin, Colin the yeah. Body Man, um, and you know he gets another great moment in this episode where he tries to stare them down from from going in there, and they're finally sort of sick of dealing with Colin the Body Man. But uh, uh, I think that's like such a such a fun little detail. That guy. Yeah, lots of resonances there Always because there. you know, of course, he famously stared Kendall down earlier in the season too. Just a very small thing I noticed in Culkin's performance. Maybe this is just a dumb improv thing, but I noticed that he has this tendency to slip into a British accent when he's trying to talk about something serious. Right? He does that. Yes. He yes. has that thing where he goes, <laughs> if it pleases the court, right before he you know tells Kendall, you yeah. didn't really kill that guy, and you know at the intervention he's like, I suppose I don't want you to die or whatever. Uh, just a. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just a very like small, dumb bit of like deflection. I think, in um, in Mass and Time of War, he walks in and he goes, "What's all this then?" And it's cute because it tracks because you know their mom is English, so they picked up on some Englishes, Englishes, Anglicisms. I don't know <laughs> what the term is, yeah. but I also felt like Snook's accent was slipping a little bit here, which tracked for me also because um it's the type of thing like when you know uh, you're from a place but you don't live there anymore but you go back and you talk with your parents and you slip back into that accent um there was a a comment once about jemima kirk on girls um that her character sounds like she grew up somewhere between um heathrow and jfk and it sort of just um yeah reminded me of that <laughs> Well, Isaac, um, it's it's been as delightful as, as, we, as we hoped it would be to have you back on the show. Um, oh, man, what a pleasure. Uh, I'd like to give you space to talk about uh, what you're working on right now and uh, what you've yeah. got coming out. Yeah, absolutely. So my second book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. It's a cultural history of the method and of acting and of American pop culture through the 20th century. Uh, you can pre-order it right now. The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. You can pre-order it from wherever you get uh, uh, books. Uh, I am also the co-host of Slate's podcast about the creative process called Working. You can check that out at slate.com slash working. The uh, other hosts are June Thomas and Karen Hahn. We have a really wonderful time. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So uh, yeah, those would be the two things that I'm going to plug right now. Strong recommend uh, to the working podcast and also dying to get my hands on a copy of the book um, should be great, great oh, fodder. I think for future discussion uh, for whatever uh, next we end up doing on this show. Yeah, this is the end of, Season three of Succession. It's the end of season three of the Roycast. Um, it uh, feels like we just got started. Um, you know, last so last fast. time we ended one of these seasons, you know, we uh, said we'd be right back with some, you know, off-season material. Then kind of life happens. So we're not going to make promises that we can't keep this time. I'll just say that we've got some ideas. And, uh, you know, keep your, keep your eyes and ears peeled. Watch this space. 
because uh, we, we do have some some more things to say about this show and uh, some more discussions. Yeah, and if you have, have uh, yeah, if you have thoughts about types of discussions you'd like us to have, let us know. I mean, we can't promise anything, but we're curious to hear what you guys think. So I want to say thanks once again to Isaac Butler. Thanks to Gabby. Thanks to our producer, Dan Black. If you enjoy the Roycast, we would so appreciate if you would take a few seconds of your day to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Uh, for the folks that you know may be discovering this show in the offseason, certainly helps uh, to have those ratings. Um, for anybody who would like to contribute to the show, there's a square link in the bio. This is a passion project. We incur minor ongoing expenses related to producing and hosting the show, uh, but we have no intention of paywalling. The content will always be free. Uh, we thank everybody who's listened to us throughout the season and has made this sort of labor of love uh, feel like more than just us talking into cans, you know, every week by ourselves. Uh, we'd certainly <laughs> do it because we love talking, uh, but we really appreciate everybody who's uh, reached out to us, engaged with us, and, you know, given us ideas to talk about on the show. Um, so until you hear from us again, this has been the Roycast. Thanks, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. How deeply are you sleeping or are you still awake? A good friend told me you've been staying out so late Be careful, oh my darling, oh be careful what it takes From what I've seen so far, the good ones always seem to break And I was screaming at my father and you were screaming at me And I can feel your anger from way across the sea And I was kissing strangers, I was causing such a scene Oh, the heart, it hides such unimaginable things Grab me by my ankles, I've been flying for too long I couldn't hide from the thunder in a sky full of song And I want you so badly, but you could be anyone I couldn't hide from the thunder in a sky full of song Hold me down, I'm so Music starts to play In a city without seasons It keeps raining in LA I feel like I'm about to fall The room begins to sway And I can hear the sirens But I cannot walk away Grab me by my ankles I've been flying for too long I couldn't hide from the thunder In a sky full of song I want you so badly, but you could be anyone I couldn't hide from the thunder in a sky full of song Hold me down, I'm so tired now, Amy.